Afternoon, everyone. My name is Kamal, and I'll be bringing to us the continuation of our series in the book of Exodus, which is why I asked for the reading to be changed. Oh, yeah. So the reading from Exodus 9, I hope, summarizes and is the high point of the section from Exodus we'll be looking through. Psalm 78 is a fantastic psalm, and it, the, the reading from the Psalm 78, which is noted in the handout, in the brochure for today, is a good reading. So nourish your soul by reading Psalm 78. But we're going to be addressing, the, continuing the series in Exodus. So let me pray, and we'll get into it. Thank you, Father God. Blessed be your name, because you have given us your son, Jesus, and you have shown your power over Pharaoh. You have shown your power in defeating the devil and all his minions. And by your Holy Spirit, now lift us up to the throne of your grace, as it were, that we would know you and be strong in your Son. Amen. At the end of the talk, I think I'll open up for questions. Um, has Josh been doing that of late? Yes, he has. Good. So uh, at, the op at the end, I'll open up for questions. And if you really want to ask questions on Psalm 78, you can. But I might, I might be winging the answers there because I haven't read and studied the psalm. But we'll see how we go. Okay. We need to grow up and take responsibility for the choices that we make so that we take charge of our life and we're independent adults. I mean, that's what we say to our children and our grandchildren. I certainly hope that that's your hope for them, that as they grow up, they are people who grow in maturity by taking responsibility for their choices and being in charge of their own life. If our children and grandchildren grew up and were constantly dependent on us, I mean, that's not mature. We'd be worried about them. And that is why today's passage is unusual. What the plagues show us about God and about his relationship with us is that God doesn't consider maturity. Okay, To be mature from God's perspective is to realize that we are not in charge of our own life. We are not sovereign. We are not the king over our own life and over our, our own destiny. We are servants of God. So there you go. If you get nothing else from today's talk, know that this passage has to do with serving God, not being sovereign over our, our own life. So last week, you'll remember Josh talked about how we tend to think that we're owners, but we're only stewards. So Pharaoh thought of himself as possessing, owning, and being able to do what he wants with the people of Israel. He should have realized that he was only looking after the people of Israel for a time. God was the father of Israel. And when he said, let my children go, let my people go, he should have let them. Today, God is in charge. We are not. Now, if anyone could be forgiven for thinking that he really was in charge of his life and of everyone else around him, it would have been Pharaoh. I mean, Pharaoh really was the king, wasn't he? He was king over Egypt and king over the mighty Egyptian empire. The problem is, the power went to his head. Pharaoh thought he was divine. Pharaoh thought that he and his magicians really were a channel of supernatural power. And the first challenge, the first warning from this passage to us is, don't mess with magic. Because Pharaoh thought his, he and his magicians really did channel supernatural power, 
That's why he was not impressed with Moses' first miracle. So in chapter 7, Aaron throws his staff down in front of Pharaoh and it becomes a snake. But Pharaoh summons the wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Even each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. So when, now, as the story continues, we know that God showed that he was more powerful by making Aaron's snake eat the other snakes, the other staffs. And later on, as the plagues progress, the Egyptian magicians can't keep up. In Exodus chapter 8, when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And so the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. So yes, God demonstrated that he is the real power, the real supernatural power here. But he did that in the context of a conflict of supernatural power. Don't mess with magic. In today's scientific age, we tend to think that magic is just, you know, smoke and mirrors. It's just fooling people. No, no, no. There is real supernatural activity going on there, and it's quite dangerous. Pharaoh's magicians were on to something. Now, God was more powerful, yes, but there was something real going on in there where they could mimic the genuine power of God. And that is not fun. That's not something to be toyed with. It's dangerous. Now, recently, people have become disenchanted with science, especially young people. Okay? One of the advantages I have with hanging out with youth group and stuff and is that I can see the way that young people think and I get to engage with sort of emerging culture. And I'll tell you, people are getting disenchanted with science and re-enchanted with the supernatural. David Brooks a journalist for the New York Times. And look, it's the New York Times, okay? That's not some rubbish rag. It's a major international publication. He said in an article in June this year, we're living in the midst of a, of a religious revival. It's just that the movements that are rising are not what we would normally call religion. And you see, I got the reference there. I think it's free online now. David Brooks, the age of, of Aquarius all over again. New York Times, 10th of June. And then he goes on to talk about astrology and witchcraft and mindfulness. And he mentions in the article that especially a young, among young people, young people are like not, they're not dismissive of science so much as they don't think science and technology have the answer. What science and technology ever done for us? Oh, it gave us pollution. It's given us global warming. We need to get back in touch with the natural biorhythms of the world so ancient grains not processed food and also we need to get in touch with the deep supernatural spiritual forces that are at work in the world and you know what i think they're on to something because as christians we believe that there are supernatural forces at work in the world we believe that we believe in God, and God is invisible, a supernatural force in the world. But for us, we say, if you really want to get in touch with the supernatural rhythms of the world, get in touch with Jesus. In the Gospels, in the New Testament, 
Jesus proved himself to be the Christ in the midst of a supernatural conflict. Do you notice that? Just like God proved that he was more powerful than the magicians of Pharaoh, Jesus proved that he is the one who commands even the demons and they submit to him. Think about it. In the Gospel of Mark, the man possessed by a legion of demons, he was so supernaturally strong, he could break chains that had shackled him. And he screamed and cut himself and lived in the tombs, a living dead person, frightening, something out of our nightmares, out of those vampire movies. And then Jesus turns up and the legions of demons scream and crash down in front of Jesus because they recognize that Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is king, even over the supernatural forces of the world that we cannot control, that are more powerful than human beings. And so the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So why follow the devil? Why try and get into magic and astrology and the occult and things like that? The devil's a loser. If you want to get in touch with the supernatural, follow Jesus. The sovereign, the king, even over the supernatural. And the apostle Paul warned the Corinthians and through the Corinthians warns us. The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. And in the context, what the apostle is saying is to the Corinthians, don't mess with magic. Don't get involved in magical rites that they that back in Corinth were very common. Worship of idols and that sort of thing. Even in a social context or a business context, don't mess with magic. And God says the same thing through them to us. In the book of Exodus, Pharaoh's magicians show us that magic and the supernatural realm are real and that human beings, we can access it and manipulate it to a degree and participate in supernatural power. But it's not good. It's not fun. It's dangerous. And what's the point? We know and worship the one who is sovereign over all of that. If you want to get in touch with the supernatural powers of the universe, worship Jesus, the king, even over the demons. So that's the first thing that this passage shows us. The second thing is, don't be like Pharaoh in being really stubborn and ignoring God's warnings. Why are there nine plagues? Why not just one or two? In the passage that I asked to be read, God says, I could have unleashed the full force of my plagues and wiped you off the face of the earth. Well, why didn't God just do that? Totally nuking the Egyptians, protecting his people, just like he does in the later plagues, protecting his people and then letting them go free. Yay, why didn't he do that? One way of seeing the nine plagues is God's patience. Because he really did want Pharaoh to learn that God is powerful and, that, and to willingly, voluntarily let the people go. Instead of nuking Pharaoh, he turned the heat up little by little. You know how one way that we discipline our children is through counting? One, two, three, okay, that's it. Three strikes, you're out or you're in, you're grounded or whatever. Pharaoh didn't stop at three, he kept going. One, two, three... Okay, four, five. 
But Pharaoh was really stubborn. He kept ignoring the word of God. You'll notice throughout the plagues, Moses and Aaron just keep coming and saying, okay, this is what the Lord says. He just keeps saying the word of God, but Pharaoh ignores, does not listen to the word of God. And now that immediately brings us to the question of where does Pharaoh's stubbornness come from? Did God, did he, Pharaoh, choose to be stubborn or did God make him stubborn? Because those of us who come to church regularly, you're familiar with how in previous chapters and in these passages, it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And for those of us who are familiar with Presbyterian theology, predestination and election, even the the big fancy theological term, reprobation, what's going on here? Okay, well, in these four chapters, Exodus Uh, 5 to 9, basically there's three ways that it talks about Pharaoh's stubbornness. I hope you can see it. I'm not sure if it's big enough, but sometimes Pharaoh is the active person. He hardens his own heart. Sometimes it's just in the passive. Okay, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We don't know from the text. Is God hardening him or Pharaoh hardening him, himself? Sometimes it's obviously God. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay? And when we plot the passages, this is basically what we get. So it's, a, it's sort of, you know, almost equal between Pharaoh and God with some we just don't know. But it's interesting to me that it begins more, at least in our passages, it begins more with Pharaoh and God only starts being active about halfway through. Okay? Here's what this means for us. Pharaoh is totally responsible for his own actions. He decided to be stubborn and he and his people suffer the consequences of his folly. But in and through Pharaoh's honest folly, his true decisions, God is working to bring out what God wants to happen. God's will is bigger than and determines even, I'll use that word, determines Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh only decides what Pharaoh decides because God has decided that Pharaoh will decide what Pharaoh decides. God is sovereign even over our choices. But that immediately makes us think, oh, so are we just like, you know, those plastic toys that our children play with, G.I. Joe, Transformers, Barbie, whatever is fashionable these days, where they're really passive and we move their arms and heads and legs and everything. And then when they break, we throw them in the bin. Is that what we are to God? Is it that we're just completely passive and when God's bored with us, he throws us in the bin? Well... God is king over our decisions, but the way God operates is not the same between those whom he brings to himself and those whom he, well, let's go their own way. Let me show you from our denominational standards, the Westminster Confession. Let me show you how the Westminster Confession talks about it. So in section three, it says that some people are predestined to everlasting life. Old-fashioned language there, it was written in the 1640s. Others, now this is interesting, doesn't use the same word, does it? Some are predestined to life, others foreordained to death. And the fact that it uses different language, I think, is significant 
because later on after talking in some sections about God's election it says the rest of humanity notice that the non-elect there's a certain passivity in God there the rest of humanity God was pleased to pass by and in his bypassing them he preordains foreordains them to dishonor and wrath for their sin but you notice even the Westminster Confession which is about as pulpit thumpingly predestinarian as you can get I'll tell you even the Westminster standards backs off at least at this point in using hardening language it the assumption here is that God has to work in people to draw us to himself but left to our own devices we would just walk away from God which is exactly the case this has to do with the nature of sin sin is more than just doing bad things sin is prejudice prejudice against God that we are naturally normally turned away from God we think he's we think he stinks we think he's boring we think he's not worth living for and so anything he says to us we're just like yeah sure whatever yeah yeah and we're not listening we're like Pharaoh yeah yeah when God punishes us for a little time we're like I'm sorry I'm sorry I'm sorry but then when God draws back his punishment we're like ha I knew it you're just soft you're just a soft touch I'm going my own way na 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 that is what sin is it's the worst kind of irrational annoying faintly embarrassing tantrum from our own children or perhaps you've seen it other parents poor old parents being embarrassed in a supermarket or something when a kid starts throwing things and breaking stuff and then parents you broke it you have to pay for it or when when god works in someone to turn us to himself that's the miracle god is actively working in the elect to turn us back to himself the rest he just says fine he don't want me fine bye bye sometimes in people like pharaoh he reinforces their prejudice that's what's key okay but pharaoh is not a robot he's responsible for what he genuinely decides and even his officers knew that pharaoh's officials in chapter 10 say to him how long will this man moses be a snare to us for goodness sake can you let these hebrews go so they can worship their god don't you realize that egypt is ruined even pharaoh's officials could see that pharaoh was just being an idiot so friends we are responsible for our actions how has god been drawing you to himself lately now most of the time god draws us not through punishing he draws us with love with kindness perhaps we have experienced prayers that have been answered perhaps people tell us stories of their own experience with christianity and perhaps that awakened in us a desire wow my friend whom i trust they told me they really believe jesus maybe there's something in that and that's wonderful when we come to jesus and come to know him for the first time through love and joy and confidence that he is good but sometimes and perhaps some of us can tell stories uh, it would be interesting to hear sometimes god has to prize our stubborn fingers off the idols that we cling on to just like pharaoh another way of seeing the nine plagues is that 
it's God judging the gods of Egypt. So the flies and the frogs and all that, they represent the supernatural gods that uh, Egypt worshipped. And so God systematically like smashes them one by one. Has God had, had to do that to you? Have you seen God doing that to others? What are our idols, our 21st century idols that we tend to cling on to and trust that they will make our life good? Oh, you know, my superannuation, it will keep me safe. Next minute, superannuation firm goes bust. Oh, my, my health and strength, I will trust our doctors and my medical insurance to keep me safe. Medical insurance says, oh, sorry, this is a pre-existing condition. I'm not, we're not going to pay for you. Or even our, our medical technology, who here has been knocked over with the cold virus over the last couple of weeks? How, how many of us? Only a, only a few. Okay, the rest of you have been taking your vitamins. But you get my point. All these centuries of science, and we don't even have a cure for the common cold because it outmutates our scientists. I have a friend who died. Now, he had a pre-existing respiratory ailment, but he got knocked over with a cold, and it was so, it was, he died. The, the oxygen tent of RPA in St. Leonard's could not save him. He was a believer. Okay, I look forward to seeing him in glory, preached at his funeral, but I tell you, everyone was sad. Of course, he was about my age, not an older gentleman. So, First thing, don't mess with magic. Pharaoh and his magicians okay, were on to something, but it's dangerous. Don't be stubborn like Pharaoh. Don't make God have to prize your fingers off your, your idols, whatever they are. And don't make him have to break your knuckles in the process, which is kind of what he had to do with Pharaoh, isn't it? And thirdly, don't try and negotiate. I mean, maybe by now you're like, okay, okay, I get it. Yes, God is Lord. He is bigger than me. He is the king. Okay, let's sit down. God, pull up a seat. Let's have a chat. And let's negotiate what it means for you to be my king. I mean, that's what Pharaoh tried to do. God kept saying to him, I, uh, I, I want my people to make a three-day journey into the desert. But Pharaoh keeps trying to bargain God down. So first he says, okay, go and sacrifice to your God here in the land. You're not allowed to leave the land because they kind of get it from his perspective. They leave the country, they're not going to come back. And so, yeah, you can worship your God, but only in this land. And how did God respond? He slapped Pharaoh with more plagues. All right, all right, sorry, says Pharaoh. Let only the men go worship the Lord. The women and children, they have to stay within the land. They're my hostages. No, says God. Smacks him with more plague. All right, all right. I'm sorry, all right. Pharaoh summons Moses. Go worship the Lord. The men can go. The women and children can go. But your flocks and herds, they, you have to leave them in the land so you won't have anything to eat. You'll be starving and you'll need to come back. And God's response smacks him with still more plagues. You can't negotiate with God Almighty. God, the God of the Bible, sovereign over the universe, will only accept unconditional surrender. And you know, it's the same thing with Jesus. 
people tried to negotiate with him. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus says to a man, follow me. And the man replied, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, what do you think of that? That's actually quite good, isn't it? What a good, noble, responsible young man. He's trying to keep the fifth of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. And perhaps, now we read that and we think his father's recently died. He's like, just a sec, just a sec. I'll just do the funeral, be with you in a minute. Which could be the case. Or it could be that he's saying his father's still alive. Wait for me until my father is dies and then I can make my own decisions and follow after you because like, I'll be free of family responsibilities then. And those of us who come from a more traditional background, you get the compliment, the honesty, the, the, the valuing, the honoring of the parents there. This is the kind of follower that Jesus wants, isn't it? Well, Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You, you go proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, folks, do you see the insult that Jesus is doing here? He's basically saying, anyone who doesn't follow me is already dead. I define what real life is. And so, anyone who's not following me, you can just let them deteriorate and stink. Because they're just fit for maggots. You follow me. That's just downright rude. That's dangerous. That's what cult followers do. Cult followers break up families. Who does this Jesus think he is anyway? God or something? Folks, we cannot negotiate with Jesus. We cannot say to him, yes, Jesus, I'll follow you if you, if you give me good marks in my exams. Oh, I'll follow you if you give me a good family. I'll follow you if you give me a nice house. If you give me comfort. If you give me anything. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, king over the universe, the one who died and rose to bring us to himself, will not negotiate. He requires absolute surrender. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, author of a famous book called Discipleship, or sometimes the title is translated from German, Cost of Discipleship. He puts it like this, famous line, When Christ calls a person to follow him, he bids him come and die. That's his interpretation of Jesus when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. And by the way, if anyone can write that with integrity, it's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Because many of you know he was executed by the Nazis for standing up to the Nazis and saying, oh, Jews are in the image of God. You shouldn't be persecuting them the way that you are. But friends, there's no need to negotiate with Jesus. When he bids us come and die, he's not asking us to do anything he didn't do for us us in the first place. Jesus Christ is our servant king. If you think about it, Jesus is the opposite to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is the opposite to Jesus. Pharaoh opposed God and fought God. Okay, that supernatural combat that I referred to. Jesus obeyed his heavenly father. In John chapter 5 verse 19, Jesus says the son can do not, nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. And in the context of a supernatural combat, in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus was being tempted by the devil, 
Jesus obeyed the Father. When the devil says he's fasting, he's starving, turn this, these stones into bread. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus conformed himself to the word of God, the same word that Pharaoh was ignoring. Pharaoh set himself up as king against God and oppressed God's people as king. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Philippians chapter 2. And then giving himself all the way to death on a cross. And why did Jesus do that? He did it to rescue, to save God's people. So Pharaoh, in his foolish, arrogant, opposing God, setting himself, himself up as sovereign, as king, he brought death and suffering and persecution on God's people, but then on himself and his people as well. Jesus Christ, he takes our death upon himself so that we can live in this world live for him now and enjoy eternal life with him forever. How much more opposite can you get? In this sense, Pharaoh is kind of like the Antichrist. I don't mean that literally, but he is the 100% opposite to Christ. It's as if Pharaoh is sin incarnate. Okay? Everything about the stubbornness and folly and self-destruction of sin pharaoh demonstrates in these chapters and it's as if pharaoh is satan incarnate i don't mean that literally okay but in the sense of him demonstrating the complete anti-god foolish destruction that comes from submitting to the supernatural forces of evil does, does that make sense the opposite to everything that jesus is and everything that is good and holy and de delightful about following our god the servant king. We think that being mature means taking charge of our life and taking, making our own decisions, making our own way. God in these passages, in these chapters, shows us that true maturity comes from taking off our crown and laying it at the feet of Jesus who really is the king of the universe. God and as a human being, the risen savior of the world this passage has shown us three truths first there is a god two you're not him i'm sure you're familiar with that joke but the third truth is he is jesus god really is jesus because god, jesus is the true supernatural power sorry the true king over all supernatural power don't mess with magic follow jesus jesus is the opposite to the stubbornness and folly of sin. Jesus obeys God. So trust Jesus and let us also shape our life according to the Bible, according to God's word. Quick to listen, quick to obey, just like Jesus. And don't negotiate with Jesus. You don't have to. What are Jesus' terms of surrender? What does it mean for us to completely abandon ourselves, take off our crown, lay it at the feet of Jesus? What's his contract of submission here it is if the sun sets you free you will be free indeed
Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, that you gave us your Son, who in fulfillment of all your promises died and rose to set us truly free. We rejoice that you are mighty and sovereign and that you showed yourself powerful over against Pharaoh. We lament Pharaoh's folly. We confess that we are often too much like him for our own good. Forgive us for the times that we tend to ignore you. We don't like what you say. We want to do things our own way. Please humble us. Draw us to yourself that we would know your son and his forgiving power. And then change us by your word that like your son, instead of rebelling and being stubborn, we would conform our life to you, especially when things are difficult. And help us to not fear completely surrendering to your son, but to see him in his mercy and glory so that following him is the joy that it should be. For the honor of his name, amen.